Morning. Y'all hear me okay? All my notes are on my laptop, so it's going to be sitting up here. Um, hope you got a chance to read Esther uh, 6 through 10. Let me get back to the top. All right. So welcome to Amateur Hour. My name is John. <laughs> so this is my first time preaching. Uh, but while I was reading the section this week, I got on social media, and I see the things that are going there that correlate with what's going on or what happened in Esther, and that is they tried to shut down the Jewish people. They tried to annihilate them. They, they wanted to kill them. They wanted to destroy them. And in today's political climate's hot-button issue, they want to shut our churches down. They want to stop us from preaching the Word of God, which we will not do. Um, not really sure how I'm going to follow along with this young man right here and what he spoke this morning during the worship service or the testimonies we have, but I will do my best. Uh, on Thursday mornings, this is my shameless plug for the men's group. Y'all are welcome to come. On Thursday mornings, we meet the men in the foyer. We have a devotional period, and then we come in here to the sanctuary, and we sit in a circle, usually right over here, and we tell each other what our issues are, what problems we are having, and what we want prayers for. And we sit around this circle, and these men get together, and we share our lives with each other, and we pray for one another. This is a good time to get to know people. It's a good time to uh, get to pray for people. It's a good time to just come in fellowship with like-minded men. And it is open to anybody that wants to come. 630 in the morning on Thursdays. Just saying, it's rather early. All right. So Mordecai may have had these feelings when he was uh, when he was there about wanting to shut them down. He may have had these feelings of uh, of being scared. Um, Haman had declared, as Jeremy spoke last week. Haman had declared. That on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is Adar, that all the Jews will be annihilated. This came along and Haman wrote this decree on the 13th uh, day of the first month. And so, yeah, that's where we're at. And so the first thing that Queen Esther did, okay, Mordecai, he, he, he talks to the queen his cousin, the young lady that he raised, he talks to her. He says, what are we going to do about this? You are not going to escape this. And so what happens is, the first thing that Esther does is that she calls everybody together and she, she tells Mordecai, get everybody together, get all the Jews together and pray and fast for three days and I and my maids will do likewise. And so they do that. Well, the other day I was looking at a post on a social media page, and a picture popped up, and it says, prayer is never our last resort, it's our first line of offense. And in 1 John 5.14 it states, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so the first thing that Esther told Mordecai to do, and she did likewise, was to call everybody together to fast and to pray. 
And as we saw in 1 John 5.14, that if we have that confidence, he hears us. And if you hear me cough, it's allergies, okay? (laughs) And so, um, as they fasted and prayed for God for a solution to the problem, what was the result of this? And to get there, we will go to Esther chapter 10. When it gets up there, the entire chapter. All right. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with full count of greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews. Because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all Jews. So how did that happen? We're at the end of the book. Mordecai, who would not bow down to Haman, is now second in command. So how did that happen? And to do that, to find out what happened, we're going to go back to... I'm going to summarize chapter 6. As Haman enters the courts, he is on his way to ask the king... For the right to hang Mordecai from the gallows that he built outside of his house. Now these things were 75 feet tall. And uh, he asked him to do that. But before Haman got anything out of his mouth, the king asks him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? So who's Haman going to think that he's talking about? He thinks he's talking about himself, right? That the king wants to honor him. So he's giddy. He's happy. He's excited. We are going to... He's like, I'm going to be honored by the king. And so what he does is he goes through there. And the king, he's like, okay, king, here's what we need. We need a royal robe that you have worn. We need a horse that you have ridden with a royal crest on its head. Then... Let a trusted noble prince deliver them and put the robe on the man and lead the horse around the city with the man riding on it while proclaiming, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And so Haman thinks this is going to happen to him. The next words out of King Xerxes' mouth is, go, you do that for Mordecai. And so at this point, Haman is no longer giddy. He's not happy at all. He's got to honor a man who refused to bow down to him. And so what happens is, is that Haman has to go do this under order of the king to lead Mordecai on this horse dressed in a robe and say, this is what is done to the man that the king delights to honor. And so imagine... Let me see, I can imagine Haman leading this horse around. This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And so he's muttering under his breath, probably I would be. I don't like this. 
I'm angry right now. I'm jealous because that should be me on the horse with a prince leading me around. But that's not what happens. He is leading Mordecai around. He is humiliated. Poor fella. And so he gets done doing this, right? He's, he, he goes back home. He's complaining to his wife and his friends. He's like, oh man, I had to lead Mordecai around. All I want to do was hang him. And the king honored him. So what am I supposed to do with this, right? And his wife tells him. So what happens next? His wife tells him. He says, if Mordecai is a Jew whom you've already begun to fall before, you're not going to win this thing. It's not going to be good for you. Now what happens? Mordecai's whisked away to the next banquet. And so at the banquet, Mordecai comes in, and, and they're probably, they're probably done eating. I'm not really sure. It didn't really say. But Esther tells about a man who is so evil that he desires to destroy kill and annihilate her people which would include her as well now this is the king's wife any of you men that are married you know if someone decides they want to annihilate your wife you're not going to be happy with them so the first thing the king does is says who said this who is doing this who made this decree that's going to kill you and so what happens Esther goes Haman did it Haman's standing right there Haman did it the king's not happy. So he goes for a walk. Right? He's walking around in the palace garden. And he comes back. Haman has stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther. And so he's probably over there getting a little weak in the knees. And he falls across the couch in which she is laying on. And so the king comes back in and sees this happening. And he says, uh, let me see. Will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? As if, you know, it's okay to do it while he's not in the house, right? But he's like, you know, I'm here, and you're hitting on my wife, bro. We're not going to have this. And so what happens is, is that uh, as soon as these words leave his mouth, they covered his face. They being the king's guards. They're around him. They come up, and he's like, you're going to assault my wife in my house while I'm here. Wham! His face gets covered up. Now in some verses, or in some translations, they add signaling his doom. This completes the thought and clarifies the action that is coming up. It is not in the original Hebrew, but it is added to clarify what is happening. Why they covered his face. This meant that Haman was going to die, okay? And so, Harbona, a eunuch of the king, as they covered Haman's face, he goes... Hey, king, look, you see those gallows way over there in front of Haman's house that he meant to hang Mordecai from? The man you just honored? The man who spoke kindly about you? The man who saved your life? See those gallows? King goes, hang him on it. And so that's what happens. Now, you've got to remember, Haman's face is covered, not his ears. So this is not... He didn't hear what was going on. He knew exactly what was going on. He heard what was happening. He heard where it was going to happen. These gallows were in front of his house. They're not someone lost in a distance, right? They're in front of his house where his wife and his children are going to be seeing this. And so they hang him on it. He knew what was going to happen, and they did it. So afterwards, the king informs 
or Esther informs the king that Mordecai is her cousin, the man that raised her. The man that honored the king, that the king just honored, is, is, is related to him. And so the king had already taken the signet ring off of Haman before he hung him. And he gave it to Mordecai. And gave him authority to do things in, king, in the king's name, right? And so Esther had asked the king to revoke the orders that Haman had enacted. And so on the 23rd month, or the 23rd day of the third month, which if you're keeping score, is a little over two months from the time Haman decided that he was going to annihilate the Jews. So in two months' time, Haman went from being head dog to coming down and being dead. And now the guy, this is mortal enemy, the guy he hated has taken his place. And so, let me get back to my notes here. Uh, he's asking, Esther's asking for a revocation. Well, when they get to it, what they say, documents written in the king's name and sealed with his ring, which Haman done, cannot be revoked. And so they can't bring it back. So the king authorizes Mordecai to write a new one. And so on the 23rd day of the third month, a new plan was created. It looked just like the old plan. And before, the Jews were sad, and they didn't know what was going on. They wondered what had happened. And now, Mordecai is making this new plan. It's exactly like the old one, except it says the Jews can do likewise to the people that are seeking to destroy them. And so they do this, and this is to be carried out from the time of Haman, it's 11 months to the day of when it's supposed to be carried out. From the time of Mordecai, it's just under nine months. And so they've got nine months to prepare. Before, with Haman, the Jews were not allowed to fight back. This time they can. They can defend themselves. And so what they're doing is... Uh, Mordecai had created this. It got sent out to all 127 provinces of King Xerxes. And so now we're at the point where we're going to read Esther 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 15 through 17. And when Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebration. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because the fear of the Jews had seized them. And so I guess the old adage... If you can't beat them, join them applies here, right? Because they weren't going to beat them. And so we see that all the edicts were distributed. There was happiness, happiness and joy and gladness and honor with feasting and celebration. And so let's look at the differences in the reactions between Haman's edict and Mordecai's edict. So Mordecai had gone from sackcloth to ashes, sackcloth and ashes to wearing royal purple and white. The city of Susa went from confusion. 
they, they didn't understand what was going on. To now they're shouting and rejoicing. The Jews went from fasting, weeping, and lamenting, being covered in sackcloth and ashes, to celebrating with gladness, joy, and honor. And the Jews went from fear of other groups, of other nationalities, with whom they were living with, to having those same groups fear the Jews, and many of them coming to become Jews. So now we're going to read Esther chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. Now on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the kings, administrators, helped the Jews. Because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The, the Jews struck down all the enemies with, with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed, and we're going to skip down to after that, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? It will be granted. And if it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa three hundred men, but they did not lay a hands on their plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces, who assembled to protect themselves and to get relief from the enemies... They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested. And made it a day of feasting and joy. Now it's interesting to note that upon the death of the enemies, the Jews did not plunder. They had every right to do so, because the edicts were the same. Haman's edict said to kill, destroy, and annihilate, and take their stuff the same thing with the Jews. Mordecai said to kill, destroy, and annihilate and take their stuff. But they did not. Because it wasn't about taking their stuff. That wasn't a motive at all. It was about destroying the enemy that was trying to kill them. 
And so can you imagine the guy in Susa, married, he's in his house, he's made it through the 13th. He's like, oh, thank you. Whoo, I made it. And then on the 14th, he realizes they're coming for him, right? And I can just hear it now. As his wife says, I told you we should have visited my mother in the other province. Just as the door breaks down. And so what we got here is that in two days in the city of Susa, in the citadel, they did the destruction of the enemies. In the other ones, they did not. And so this is why that on the 14th day and the 15th day of the 12th month of Adar, the celebration of the Feast of Purim is celebrated even to this day. And if you want to celebrate it, it's coming up February 26th and 27th in 2021. Now, this is not the only time that the king has, or that God has intervened to help his people. In Genesis 22, God saved Isaac when he tested the faith of Abraham. So Abraham was tested by God. Who was, he was told to sacrifice Isaac, his only son. His beloved son. Have we heard that before? In the land of Moriah. On the mountain of God. On a mountain that God will show him to do his burnt offering. And so they got up to the mountain. Built an altar. And Abraham tied up Isaac. To sacrifice him. And as the knife went over his head. And as we read in Genesis 22, 11 through 14. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven. And said, Abraham, Abraham. He goes, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, and this fear is not to be afraid of God. It is to respect God, to honor God. And so I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over, and he took the ram and sacrificed it As a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain the Lord of the Lord it will be provided. So God saved Isaac. Who who he had said would carry on the lineage of Abraham. Towards a great nation. And he provided necessary sacrifice in place of Isaac. And so now we go to the beginning of Exodus chapter 5. We see that God had sent Moses back to Egypt to talk to Pharaoh. And so we're in Exodus chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is this Lord? That I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Might be hard headed there. Well, God had told Moses, I'm going to harden the heart of Pharaoh. But watch what I do. And so after this, Pharaoh began making it difficult for the Israelites to do the job that they were enslaved to do. And so Moses, he's, he's kind of upset. He's like, okay, God, what gives? What is going on here? You sent me here to free your people and nothing's being done. 
And so God says, and I'm paraphrasing here, watch and see what I do. And you of, and all of Israel know, will know that I am God. And so Pharaoh's heart was hardened so that God's signs and wonders will be multiplied in Egypt. There were ten plagues that were sent out to Egypt. The first one was when the waters turned to blood and it stank. And it was terrible. And it smelled bad. And yet, I don't know about you. I mean, this lasted seven days. I don't know about you, but I'd have been like, go. I need my water. I got my water right here. I need water to drink. But no, not Pharaoh. Seven days, he still wouldn't budge. And so the next plague was when God sent frogs over the land. And it states in there that this was going to cover the land. This was going to be everywhere. You're going to have frogs in your bed. You're going to have frogs in your kneading bowl. That's where they they make the dough for the bread. Right? And so this was sent through. Frogs were everywhere. Now, they didn't have any water to boil some frog legs, so they couldn't even do that, right? And then we get to the dust that became lice and covered everybody. And so it was covered everywhere, and this lice came, and still Pharaoh did not let them go. And then the flies came and covered everybody but the Jews. And so we see here that God is like, okay, I'm protecting my people. Here's where we're at. And we get there, and Pharaoh is like, okay, make them disappear, and I'll let your people go. And so Moses makes it happen. Pharaoh changes his mind. And then there came a severe pestilence of the livestock. This was disease that destroyed their livestock, but not for the Jews. Still, Pharaoh did not let him go. Then we had a plague of boils. Can you guess who it's for? The Egyptians only, right? So we got the Jews walking around, no problem. Egyptians covered in boils. And next comes the hail. Not just any size hail, not the little golf ball size hail we got here. I'm pretty sure because it destroyed everything. It destroyed their crops. It destroyed pretty much anything that was in bloom and ready to be harvested. They, it was done. And still, Pharaoh's like, no, not going to do it. And so later on we got the locust who came and ate what the hail did not destroy. So now you've got things that weren't destroyed with the hail because they weren't ready to be harvested, to now the locusts coming through and eating everything else and destroying it all. Still, Pharaoh did not relent. Then darkness came over the land for three days. And this was a darkness that, according to his word, says it was felt. So couldn't see your hand in front of your face. Couldn't do anything but only for the Egyptians because the Jewish people had light. And so now we come to the announcement of the plague of death. And this is where the firstborn of everything, Pharaoh down to the lowliest maid, to the cattle, to everything that belongs to Egypt will be destroyed. And this is where God created the Passover. He gave them the directions of what to do. They were to sacrifice 
a lamb or a goat without blemish who was within its first year of life, about a year old. They were to sacrifice it, paint the blood upon the doors, and then roast the meat, not boil it, not fry it up. They were to roast it over fire. And they were to sit there and eat, and the men were to be dressed in their robes. They were dressed to, to be ready. They had their sandals on their feet. They had the belt around their waist. They had their staff in their hand. They were to be ready. And so, up pops plague number 10, as we see in Exodus 12, 29, and 31, through 31. And at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night... And there was a loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. And so Pharaoh finally told him to go. This was in the middle of the night. Remember that God had them dress and be ready. And so they left before Pharaoh could change his mind. And that wasn't the only time, but that's another sermon. And so God, now we, now we go to Judges, and we see that God used Samson to, to defeat the Philistines in Judges 15, where he had killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. Now this happened after Samson's father-in-law had given his wife to another man because he didn't think Samson wanted her. And so Samson caught 300 foxes, set their tails on fire, and they ran through the fields of grain, the olive groves, the vineyards, burning everything down. And the Philistines were angry and wanted Samson so they could kill him. He allows himself to be captured and taken to them. So we see in Judges 15, 14 and 15, as he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. And so, he had his arms bound. This wasn't around the wrist. This was around everything to keep him from moving. And so God made the rope to become like charred flax, and it was brittle, and it just fell off. And so, and more recently, in case you think this is all just in the Bible, where God saves his people, more recently, in June of 1967, a couple of years before I was born, God helped the Israeli military defeat a multi-nation attack on three sides. Now, if you look at Israel, there's water on one side. They were attacked on everywhere there was land. And so in six days, they defeated their enemy. So what did they do on the seventh day? Anybody want to guess? They rested. Exactly. They held Sabbath. I'm pretty sure. And so, now, understand also that Israel was only 20 years old as a nation again at this time having become a nation again in 1947. So they were relatively young after being scattered throughout the entire world. They had come back home, and this was 20 years later. 
And they defeated multiple nations who attacked them simultaneously. And so who are God's people? The Jewish people are his people. But since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we read in Galatians three twenty six through 29, that so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ, Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So God has had to defeat many enemies that mankind has had to face. And as you can see by that verse, we are all God's children. And God's defeated many enemies. But the greatest enemy that God has, been, has had to defeat took 33 years to accomplish. Not because he couldn't do it overnight. But because without that 33 years, we wouldn't have um, the story of Christ in his life to guide us. And so this was done when Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the Son of God, defeated death when, after dying on the cross, was resurrected from the dead. And so Christ came and died and was resurrected so that all mankind, Jews and Gentiles, and yes, even politicians, can come to the saving grace that is found through him. So Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21, we, therefore... We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ defeated death on the cross and paved the way for man to be reconciled to God so that like Mordecai, and Esther, we can come to God in prayer and through Christ to be saved from the enemy. While we may not be saved from every earthly enemy, we will be saved, he will save us from the eternal one. In October 2003, I was injured in a motorcycle accident. It eventually cost me my left leg. Um, I had two pints of blood in the medevac helicopter on the way to Oklahoma City. Now, that's about 150 miles away from where I was injured. And so I had two pints of blood on the way up there, seven pints in the first surgery. And if you know anything about human anatomy, the average human body holds about 9 to 11 pints of blood. Let's do the math here. I had nine pints of blood that first day. I should not be standing here. And so... I was a student at a, at a Christian university, and I called up my professor, and I said, I said, pray for me. I've been in a bad accident. I was in ICU. And so I had an entire university, a Christian university, praying for me, from the president all down to everybody. Small university, but I knew everybody, right? And so they were praying for me, the churches where I lived were praying for me. The people that I knew were praying for me. If you question the power of prayer, I'm standing right here today 
to tell you that losing nine pints of blood does not mean you're going to die if God has a purpose for your life. And so he saved me from a physical death at that time. Perhaps I was spared so that I could stand before you today in such a time as this and to plead with you to come to know him. And, and just as God has other plans for me, he's got other plans for you. Cling to him and trust in his nature and how he cares for his people. And remember the words of Zechariah in Zechariah 9.16. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in the land like jewels in a crown. To sparkle like jewels in the land. To sparkle in the land like jewels in a crown. It's kind of like we are the light in the darkness. The glimmer of hope that shines for others. Who don't have hope. And so I leave you with this. If any of you want to make sure that you have eternal life. Or just want someone to pray for you. For any situation you might be in. If you want to find or be that sparkle of hope in his land. In this land for others. I'm going to invite the elders to come up here. They'll be up front to pray with you. And to help you. And to be here for you. So let us bow our heads and pray. Our most, gracious, our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Esther, of her faithfulness to her people, of her example of fasting and praying as the first line of offense and not the last, line, last resort. We thank you for loving us so much that you sent your Son to pay for our sins so that we may have the righteousness to come before you, to praise and worship you, to seek your guidance. And to petition for the things in our lives that worry us and occupies our, occupy, occupy our minds. From the peace that we find in your loving embrace. Help us to always feel your spirit with us. As we go throughout the week, help us to seek the opportunities and tell others about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grant us the boldness to do these things so that we rest in your peace. For it is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we humbly ask these things.